Thank you, colleagues. Now, before we turn to First Minister's questions, the first item is actually consideration of business motion 24367 in the name of Graham Day. 24357. In the name of Graham Day, on behalf of the Parliamentary Bureau, setting out changes to today's business. Uh, could I call on Miles Briggs as a member of the Bureau to move this motion? Move, Presiding Officer. Thank you very much. No member has indicated they wish to speak in the motion. The question, therefore, is that motion 24357 be agreed. Are we all agreed? Yes. We are agreed. Thank you. So we're going to turn next to First Minister's questions. Before we do, could I invite the First Minister to update the Parliament on COVID-19? I will indeed do that. Um, I can report that 591 new cases were reported yesterday, 2.5% uh, of all tests carried out, and that takes the total number of confirmed cases now to 207,747. 556 people are in hospital, at 26 fewer than yesterday. 42 people are in intensive care, that is seven fewer than yesterday. Uh, I regret, however, to report that a further 22 deaths uh, have been registered of people who first tested positive in the previous 28 days, and that means the total number of people who have died under the daily measurement is now 7,483. And once again, I send my deepest condolences to everyone who has lost a loved one. Uh, turning now to the vaccination programme, as of 8.30 this morning, 1,825,800 people had received a first dose of vaccine. That's an increase of 16,000. 642 since yesterday. In addition, 141,433 people have received the second dose. That's an increase of 8,673 since yesterday, which means that in total, 25,315 people yesterday received vaccination. From tomorrow, Public Health Scotland will make some changes to the COVID dashboard uh, to improve the reporting of vaccine uptake amongst health and care workers and care home residents. Uh, but I can confirm today that virtually all over 65-year-olds have now had a first dose and so have 45% of 60 to 64-year-olds, 38% of 55 to 59-year-olds and 31% of 50 to 54-year-olds. And we remain on track to offer first doses to everyone over 50, all unpaid carers and all adults with underlying health conditions by mid-April. Um, Setting officer, it is exactly a year ago today that the World Health Organisation declared COVID-19 to be a pandemic. Uh, the last 12 months have been incredibly tough, uh, unimaginably tough for everybody. But as I indicated on Tuesday, we do now have real grounds for optimism, albeit cautious optimism. Case numbers, hospitalisations and deaths have all fallen in recent weeks. And when we publish the latest estimate of the R number later today, we expect it to show that it remains below one. And of course, the vaccination programme has now given a first dose to 40% of the entire adult population and it is set to significantly accelerate over the next few weeks. So because of that continued progress, I can confirm that we will go ahead as planned with the next stage of the reopening of schools on Monday. In addition, changes to the rules on outdoor meetings and activities, which I set out on Tuesday, will come into force tomorrow. And as I have indicated, next Tuesday, I'll provide more information about our plans for the phased reopening of the economy. Uh, these plans will take account of the positive news that we can all see at the moment, but will also acknowledge the risks we still face. Case numbers are still high, the new variant is highly infectious, uh, and therefore we do need to continue to exercise caution. And for that reason, my advice to everyone is still to follow the stay-at-home stay rule for now. Uh, stay at home except for essential purposes, and please follow the facts advice uh, when you are out. That remains the best way for all of us to both protect the NHS and save lives. And I thank everyone for continuing to follow that advice. Thank you very much, First Minister. The First Minister will, will now take questions. Please press your request speak button if you wish to ask a question and I call Ruth Davidson. Thank you. Presenting officer, last week we asked about legal advice in the Alex Salmond case and the First Minister refused to answer any questions. We were told that every issue had been covered. Then the next day after FMQs and two days after her evidence session, John Swinney released another tranche of legal advice, even more damning than the last. So I'm going to ask the questions that the committee couldn't about the evidence that the government were so reluctant to release. This new evidence shows that the government's senior lawyer, Roddy Dunlop QC, warned the First Minister personally against, and I quote, ploughing on regardless because of a large expenses bill that would inevitably rise. So let me ask the First Minister, how much taxpayers' money did it cost 
from that moment on? First Minister. Uh, we set out uh, the costs of the judicial review. I, I don't have that breakdown uh, to hand. I can look in to see if we can provide that breakdown to Parliament. I think Ruth Davidson, in some respects, makes my point for me. Um, and let me say, uh, first of all, I, I take, whether the opposition always want to believe this or not, I take these matters extremely seriously. Uh, and I take very seriously the obligation on me and on my government to learn lessons from this. But the point I think Ruth Davidson is making for me is that she is quoting from the legal advice that has been published. We have published all of the substantive legal advice, which sets out very clearly, I can take the Parliament through exactly what we have published in response to the request for that. But we have set out the substantive legal advice and anybody who wants to read it, I, I suspect most people watching right now probably want to hear about vaccination and COVID and when we might come out of lockdown. But anybody who wants to read the legal advice can go onto the Scottish Government website and do that. And what that legal advice sets out very clearly, warts and all, it is an unvarnished account of what went wrong. Uh, are the opinions of senior counsel at different stages of the judicial review? Um, it sets out very clearly the error that was made by the Scottish Government and the way in which that error became to be fully realised and understood. It also sets out the views of the law officers, and of course, in terms of the ministerial code, that's what matters to ministers, uh, well into December, that notwithstanding all of that, the government should continue to defend the case for the wider reasons that have been set out. And then later in December, the reasons why that was no longer possible. So I think the impression the, the opposition is perhaps trying to give, I think, is that what we've published is somehow a rosy picture here and there are horrors lurking underneath that are being concealed. Anybody who reads this can see very clearly that is not the case. A serious error was made by the government in this investigation. And as the judicial review proceeded, eh, that error became very apparent. And that is why ultimately the judicial review had to be conceded. So perhaps instead of chasing phantoms, eh, the opposition should focus on what is there because it sets out very clearly the mistake the government made eh, and the lessons the government needs to learn from that and the lessons I am determined that the government will learn from that. Ruth Davison. Presiding officer, I asked the First Minister a very specific question, and whatever that was, it wasn't an answer. We have since learned that from the moment that Roddy Dunlop wrote that note on the 17th of December, to the time when the government finally conceded, the bill exceeded £100,000. Perhaps even £200,000, but we don't know for sure, because the government won't tell us their side of the bill. Now, before the First Minister's committee session, we know that Queen's Council stated, and I quote, the least worst option was to concede the case. That was on the 6th of December 2018, a month before the case was finally collapsed. What we didn't know last week, and we only found out on Friday, was that the First Minister personally disputed this advice. And we know this because Leslie Evans sent a note that said that she and the First Minister were unclear about what has changed since the last notes in the First Ministerial meeting. Again, I'll put it to her. If she had conceded then, hundreds of thousands of pounds would have been saved. So why did the First Minister think that she was a better lawyer than Roddy Dunlop QC and the advocate Christine O'Neill? First Minister. Um, I, I didn't, and I absolutely, most definitely don't. But what I do know is that it is my job as First Minister to ask questions, uh, to query things when I don't fully uh, understand what has been put before me, and to make sure I have as full as possible an understanding uh, of the decisions that lie before me. And I actually think it would be uh, more remarkable and uh, more deserving of criticism if I didn't ask questions like the, the one that uh, Ruth Davidson has just uh, suggested that I did. But she talks about uh, advice in an early part of December. Uh, one of the things that I was questioned about and uh, talked about extensively before the committee last week was uh, the summary uh, from the law officers on the 11th of December, which sets out very clearly, and people can look at this, is that the view of the law officers then uh, was that taking account of everything, uh, they believed we should continue to defend the case, that there were credible arguments, and I think that's a, a quote from the summary note on the 11th of December, across all of the points of the petition, including the appointment of the investigating officer, which was the key uh, area of uh, problem for us. And it was set out there that that was because there was a wider interest, as long as the case was statable, in getting a judicial determination 
on the array of challenges that had been made both to the fundamentals of the procedure and the application of the procedure. So it's not that these issues weren't properly considered, and yes, judgments were made, but everybody can see the views of councils, uh, the conclusions of law officers, uh, that ministers are duty-bound to base our judgments and decisions on, and then what happened later in December uh, that led to the decision. Uh, to concede the judicial review. And of course, uh, we also see a note from Council, I think as late as the 17th of December, where they say they believe the case is still statable, albeit they have significant concerns about it. So, you know, these are always judgments for ministers, taking account of a range of things. There was a mistake made by the government in the application of this procedure. Uh, as that became fully understood during the progress of the judicial review, that is what ultimately meant we couldn't defend the judicial review. But there were wider interests that we were also right to take into account and carefully consider at every stage of the process. And the point here is that people don't have to take my word for this. Uh, they can go and look at all of the material in quite unprecedented fashion that has now been published and draw their own conclusions, as indeed can and I'm sure uh, will the committee in due course. Ruth Davison. Thank you, Presiding Officer. The new evidence that was withheld from the committee until after Nicola Sturgeon appeared shows that Roddy Dunlop QC wrote back when the First Minister challenged his advice. And we now know what he told her in response. He wrote that there were two options, and I quote, I doubt either will work. Then a week later, both senior lawyers said that their advice had been discounted. Roddy Dunlop is the current Dean of the Faculty of Advocates. He is the most senior lawyer in Scotland. And as he previously had explained to the First Minister, Conceding the case early would reset the procedure and allow for a renewed investigation less open to challenge. So, in effect, the women's claims could be looked at again, but with the Scottish Government doing it the right way rather than spending all this time and money defending the indefensible in court and letting these women down all over again. Why didn't the First Minister listen to him? Uh, we did listen to council, but you know, lots has been said rightly, and I'm not going to get into this because other people uh, or another person is looking at this right now, but lots has been said about the ministerial code. Anybody who goes and reads the ministerial code will know that in terms of the obligations on ministers, the views of the law officers uh, are what we are, are, are duty-bound to make sure we take into account. And I've just narrated the views of the law officers. Now, the law officers coming uh, to the opinions and the judgments they do, of course, take account uh, of the advice and the views of the council that government instructs, but take account of the wider uh, interests uh, of uh, the, the government and the, the wider public interest as well. So we take account of all of this. And Ruth Davidson used a term there that is just not correct uh, until a, a very late stage to say we were defending the indefensible. Uh, yes, council, uh, council, had, council had mounting concerns. The case was considered to be statable, even by council, up until, uh, I think, the 17th of December. And there were wider uh, interests that the law officers thought were important to take into account. Now, a different First Minister may have reached different judgments. That is absolutely uh, undeniable. But any First Minister in the job has to take the decisions based on uh, the array of advice we have and weighing up the right things. Now, it is undeniably the case here that the government made mistakes which I we are determined to learn from and part of that is to look at why we got into a position in a judicial review where it became indefensible and therefore we ceased to defend it and the advice that Ruth Davidson is quoting from from the latter part of December that is the start of that process of the government realising it could no longer defend the judicial review and taking the appropriate steps to concede the judicial review at that point. So there's lots and lots and lots that I and the government have to reflect on here, and I am absolutely determined to do that. But the public have, if they so choose, uh, the ability to read all of this for themselves. They will shortly have uh, reports from the committee, I hope. They will shortly, uh, I hope, have reports from James Hamilton into the issues with the ministerial code, and they will shortly, I hope, have the report uh, that the government instructed uh, from Laura Dunlop QC into some of the internal issues that we have to uh, reflect on. So we are taking these issues really seriously um, and in unprecedented fashion, uh, unprecedented not just for this government, but in the lifetime of this parliament, have put into the public domain information that allow the public to draw their own conclusions too. Andrew Davis. Officer, at her committee appearance, the First Minister became very forgetful, and she seems determined to forget that it was her government who were the ones who failed these women so badly. According to five people now, including a QC and a civil servant, her government is responsible for leaking a complainant's name to Salmon's team. But nobody's been sacked 
were even reprimanded. And despite all her protests, the flawed procedure, the one that let these women down, has never been changed. The First Minister just mentioned a second ago that six months ago, another QC, Laura's and Lop, started a review of the procedure. Our clear understanding is that Ms Dunlop has reported in writing back to the Scottish Government on her work. So for the sake of confidence in the procedures, will the First Minister publish it now? Because, and I don't say this lightly, this week has shown again that sexual harassment complainants cannot trust the ruling party to deal with a complaint properly. First Minister. Well, firstly, can I say uh, the, the first uh, allegation that Ruth Davidson made there is, is disputed and I disputed it at committee last week. Obviously, uh, I wasn't party to the conversation uh, that it is based on, uh, and I'm limited in what I can say because of legal reasons. But let's you know, be clear, that is disputed. In terms of the, the procedure, the first thing to say is what was uh, found to be flawed was the application of the procedure. The procedure itself may well have been found to be flawed had the judicial review proceeded, but it wasn't. Uh, but we obviously want to await uh, the, the various inquiries before reflecting on changes we need to Make. I've not seen Laura Dunlop's uh, review. It will be published and it will be published um, in early course once uh, we have uh, seen it. Um, I want everything about this to be open and transparent because I do want to learn lessons. Ruth Davidson, uh, perhaps belatedly uh, over recent days, has started to talk about the women and I welcome that because that is the issue right at the heart of this. I will be uh, haunted for probably the rest of my life about the way in which the government through an error, an error made, I think in good faith, but nevertheless an error that let down those women. I've apologised for that. I wasn't involved in the investigations. I wasn't aware of the error at the time, but as head of the Scottish Government, I take and I feel responsibility for that, which is why I think it is so important to cast aside the politics in this and actually focus on the substance. That's what I'm determined to do. And that includes a determination to learn any and every lesson that any one of these inquiries tells us that the Scottish Government needs to learn. Thank you. Question number two, Anas Sarwar. Presenting officer, a year ago this week saw the first COVID death in Scotland. Since then, over 7,000 people have tragically died. And I send my condolences to everyone who has lost a loved one. Official government statistics show that 7,000 fewer people had a confirmed cancer diagnosis in the first eight months of the pandemic. That doesn't mean cancer has gone away. Cancer remains Scotland's biggest killer. We understand why the resources of our NHS were redeployed to deal with the virus, but the knock-on impact has been huge. That is, thousands of people who have cancer don't know and so aren't receiving treatment. And we know there's a direct link between early diagnosis and survival rates. So what action will the First Minister take right now to fully restart cancer services in Scotland, begin a catch-up programme and find the missing 7,000? First Minister. Uh, firstly, and um, I, I say this not, uh, please uh, take this sincerely, not as any uh, sort of jibe at Anna Sarwar, just so that we recognise the full extent of the COVID tragedy. It's actually more than 9,000 people who have died from COVID. It's more than 7,000 under the daily measurement. But the National Records of Scotland figures, of course, uh, show that that toll is even higher. Um, of course, one of the things that Anna Sarwar is right to raise, um, and perhaps we don't talk about this enough, is that there will be many people who have suffered and even died because of the, the impact and the consequences of what we've had to do to deal with COVID. And that's why when we uh, come out of this and look back and reflect on all of this, the toll will be much greater than just the direct toll of the pandemic. In terms of cancer services, uh, it is really important, well, firstly, to recognise uh, that uh, the majority of cancer treatments have and will continue uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, some patients' treatment plans will have changed to minimise the risk that they might have been facing uh, from COVID, uh, but the majority uh, of treatments uh, have continued, and that is important. We are funding health boards uh, right now to support cancer services uh, through uh, this year uh, in order to start to remobilise uh, those services that have been impacted uh, by COVID. And I would take this opportunity, I think it's really important, uh, to say directly to anybody who has worries about symptoms or changes in their body in any way that's causing them concern to contact their local GP now. The NHS is open, it is there to help you and nobody should be sitting uh, back worrying about 
potential cancer symptoms when they can and should and are encouraged to come forward. I, you know, in my own family, uh, have had somebody just this week uh, in the position of uh, having to have uh, some assessment for something that was worrying them and, and thankfully been able to, to be reassured. But I know from uh, that uh, experience uh, that those cancer services are there and we must make clear to people that they should come forward if there is anything worrying them. Thank you. And Asara? Macmillan Cancer Research themselves have said that unless Scotland's missing cancer patients are found urgently, the country is likely to face a rapid rise in people diagnosed with early, with very advanced cancers. And they've also said that progress is nowhere near fast enough for those still to be diagnosed. The truth is that there are thousands of people who don't know or don't suspect that they have cancer, who need to be diagnosed, have their treatment started, and therefore improve their chances of survival. Urgent cancer referrals have dropped by 22%. But there are also thousands more who suspect they have cancer, have made it onto a waiting list, and are waiting for diagnosis. These are individuals and their families feeling the anxiety and stress of a potential cancer diagnosis piled on top of the anxiety and isolation that comes from COVID. Diagnosis is vital. Early diagnosis even more so. It's what saves lives, not just for cancer, but for other conditions too. So can the First Minister tell the Chamber how many people who have been referred for any diagnostic test, including cancer, are currently waiting more than the six-week target? Um, I don't have that figure to hand. I may have it in my briefing folder, but to make sure we get it right, I will provide that figure um, after today's uh, session of First Minister's questions. Can I say I really agree with all of this? I think the first thing to say is that uh, we should encourage people who have concerns to come forward. I think during COVID, there has been, on the part of some people, understandably, they perhaps, as many people often do, don't want to put additional pressure on the NHS when they're dealing with a crisis, or people might understandably have concerns about the COVID risk by coming forward and going to uh, their GP, for example. So people who have symptoms that worry them should come forward. Secondly, uh, the screening programmes that had to be paused uh, have restarted. I'm at the age where I've had a, a couple of uh, appointments for those screening programmes myself in the last uh, few weeks. So those programmes are restarting. That's really important to detect cancers that perhaps people don't have symptoms of. And then, yes, we have to make sure that we're getting uh, the treatment services moving uh, as quickly as uh, we want them to do. So in terms of the cancer recovery plan, for example, uh, two new early cancer diagnostic centres um, are uh, being established within existing NHS infrastructure by uh, the, the spring uh, of, of this year, a programme of uh, prehabilitation, helping patients prepare for their treatment. There's a, a new single point of contact for cancer patients to support them through the treatment journey, a, a resource dedicated to the national oversight of clinical management guidelines. So there's a range of actions being taken to make sure that the treatment, uh, any treatment that has been delayed because of COVID restarts and that we catch up on that as quickly as possible. But let's not lose sight of the fact that many cancer treatments have and will continue uh, through the pandemic. And that's why that fundamental message that I started with is so important. And that's our... I recognise and welcome those steps that uh, the First Minister has outlined, but there will be little comfort for the missing 7,000 uh, when they do get their cancer diagnosis, a late cancer diagnosis, that will impact directly on their survival rate. Um, I have the answer on the diagnostic test. The answer is 44,516 people waiting more than six weeks for a diagnostic test. And our analysis shows that is more than doubled in a year. I recognise COVID has placed a huge strain on our NHS. It has put even more pressure on an already overstretched NHS workforce. But COVID didn't create this problem. It has made a bad situation worse. This government hasn't met the 62-day cancer waiting time since 2012. That's nine years. Nicola Sturgeon has failed to meet this target for the entire time she has been First Minister. Doesn't that show that we can't come through COVID and go back to the old arguments. Instead, we, in this parliament, should focus on what unites us as a country rather than what divides us. So shouldn't the focus of this parliament be a recovery and a catch-up plan for our NHS so that we never again, never again have to choose between treating a virus or treating cancer? First Minister. 
recovery from COVID, uh, whether it's cancer services, health services more generally, or, or the country more generally, is the focus of this government and will continue to be the focus of this government, just as uh, dealing with the acute impact of COVID and steering the country through as best we can has been the focus of me and the government uh, literally uh, seven days a week. Sometimes it has felt like almost 24 hours a day for the last year, and that will be uh, the case for as long as is necessary. In terms of cancer waiting times before uh, COVID, uh, average waits uh, in terms of the time between uh, diagnosis and treatment starting uh, are very short uh, in Scotland. Uh, we have recognised for a long time uh, there is more to do to meet targets and to reduce waiting times further. COVID has undoubtedly uh, been a serious uh, difficulty because of the, the pause in many normal aspects of the NHS that it has, has necessitated. But that is why, through investment, through reforms to how uh, treatments are being delivered and through many of the actions I've set out, uh, we're now focused on getting the NHS back uh, to normal. I hope none of us ever have to face the reality uh, that we faced over the past year again. Um, and I think our NHS has uh, coped admirably with that. But the focus now is getting the NHS back to the point where it is dealing with whatever COVID still throws at us, but is recovering and uh, seeing the patients uh, who have had treatments delayed because of COVID over the past year. Thank you. Question three, Willie Rennie. When the GFG Alliance took over the aluminium smelter and power station in Lochaber in 2016, it received a Scottish Government guarantee worth £575 million. The company promised to build an aluminium wheel factory, creating 2,000 jobs and adding £1 billion to the local economy. They said the plan was oven ready. Five years later, there's no wheel factory. They said they'd invest in a new aluminium bottle plant. That's not happened either. With the collapse of their financial partners, Greensill, can the First Minister tell me what update she has received about the 2,000 promised jobs for Lochaber? First Minister. The Scottish Government is in very regular uh, contact with the GFG Alliance, both at uh, Lochaber as well as uh, DL Steel Plant um, and at a group level overall. Uh, the original investment plan for Fort William was impacted by the sharp fall in the UK automotive output. Uh, the business has brought forward new investment plans totalling £94 million and we continue to liaise very closely with them, both about the challenges they face but also about the steps that they need to take to make sure they deliver um, on those commitments. Um, as Parliament would expect, we've taken a series of securities uh, over the assets uh, of GFG Alliance at Lochaber. Uh, that includes the smelter, the Lochaber power station uh, and land holdings, plus a, a series of other protections in support of uh, the guarantee. Uh, the last point I would make here, though, is that you know, there are serious difficulties that have been posed for uh, companies, individuals, the public sector, as we've just been reflecting on in terms of the NHS, because of, of COVID. And we need to work through those and we need to recognise and, and resolve those. But the starting point here, and this obviously predates COVID, uh, had the government not uh, worked to try to uh, facilitate GFG becoming the owners of the aluminium smelter at Lochaber, that uh, aluminium smelter would have would have closed and we would not have been able to protect any uh, jobs there or give any uh, hope for the future. So sometimes governments have to uh, try to be creative and to work hard within all due constraints that operate on us to do our best to save jobs um, and to provide uh, positive economic outlooks for parts of the country uh, that badly need it. And that's what we try to do uh, with the smelter, it's what we try to do with the DL Steelworks uh, and it's what we will always try to do in these industrial situations. Billy Rennie. That the First Minister went to the smelter, had a photograph taken and said it was boom time. To great fanfare, she went to Bifab, backed by millions of pounds, but that didn't work out either. Five years ago, she signed a deal with the Chinese company Sinofortone. It was worth billions of pounds, they said. They weren't billionaires. They owned a pub in Oxford. Lots of selfies, lots of taxpayers' money, but there are certainly not 2,000 new jobs. I think the public and the workers deserve an explanation. How much money has been lost to this? How can it be right that a company uses a 30-year 
government financial guarantee to make profits but fails to deliver the jobs that it promised? Well, you see, these are the choices governments have to make because the alternative to trying to work with companies to secure the future uh, of uh, industrial sites or, uh, or plants uh, and to secure jobs, uh, the alternative to that is just to let these places go to the wall there and then. And there, there are no jobs and there are no opportunities and there are no prospects for the future. And in many of these cases, uh, because of the action we have taken, I mean, you take DL Steelworks, for example, uh, managing to uh, protect jobs there at a time when the only alternative would have been complete and utter closure. Similarly with BIFAB. Uh, yes, BIFAB struggles and we have a long way to go, but the alternative to the work we did back then was just to let BIFAB there and then go to the wall. Presswick Airport is the same. The investments that we have had to make there have protected jobs. And although it remains difficult and remains challenging, the only alternative is simply to give up on these things, to give up on the jobs, to give up on the economic prospects um, and to say there's nothing government can do. That's not the kind of passive stand back, uh, wash our hands of problems government that this is or that I will ever want it to be. We're an activist government when it comes to trying to protect jobs and protect economic prospects and that is what we will always be. Question number four, Alison Johnson. Thank you. Presiding officer, this Saturday marks the 25th anniversary of the Dunblane shooting, a tragic day Scotland will never forget. The Scottish Greens, and I'm sure all of us in this chamber, can take this as an opportunity to, the rem to remember the lives lost that day and to commit to make sure it never happens again. Yesterday, the UK government unveiled deeply irresponsible plans to cut air passenger duty on internal flights and expand roads in Scotland. Irresponsible, because it undermines this parliament. Irresponsible, because it flies in the face of the climate emergency. And this isn't a one-off. It follows approval for a new coal mine, a freeze on fuel duty, hikes in train and bus fares, a barrage of anti-climate policies as we approach COP26 in Glasgow. So it falls to us to show leadership, but the only reason air passenger duty hasn't already been cut here is because of the Greens. So will the First Minister take responsibility and ensure APD is not cut in Scotland, whatever the UK government does? First Minister. Well, firstly, can I uh, also take the opportunity uh, to reflect on the 25th anniversary on Saturday of the uh, Dunblane atrocity. Um, I'm sure uh, every single one of us, uh, particularly those of us who are old enough to remember that day vividly, will be thinking uh, of the families um, who lost uh, children that day, the family of the teacher uh, whose life was taken uh, from her, and of course all of the community in Dunblane. Uh, that was a day that is etched on uh, the memories and etched into the hearts of everybody uh, across Scotland and my thoughts are very much with everybody um, associated with that dreadful day uh, in Scotland's history. Um, we have no plans uh, to cut uh, your passenger duty. The history of that uh, I won't rehearse. Uh, right now we're focused on uh, trying to work out the best way to recover our economy from the catastrophe of COVID uh, and also how we do that in a way that is consistent with our moral obligations to meet our net zero uh, targets and to uh, live up to the responsibilities uh, up to, but long after uh, the COP26 summit uh, that will take place in Glasgow later this year. Uh, that has a range of uh, different questions and obligations uh, for governments everywhere. And I think if anybody looks at our budget, uh, including those aspects that we were able to agree with the Greens uh, and our policy priorities, you will see very strongly uh, that commitment to a green sustainable recovery, uh, which is right, I think, for job creation in Scotland, but also absolutely right uh, for the future of the planet as well. Alison Johnson. Thank you. Um, the fact remains, uh, First Minister, that transport emissions are going up, causing Scotland to miss its climate targets. And that's why the Scottish Greens have prioritised this area. I'm pleased that we've secured free bus travel for everyone aged 21 and under, increased funding for cycling, walking and wheeling, and got commitments to take forward key rail projects. But we do need to go further and faster. This week, the First Minister told business leaders that COP26 was perhaps our only chance to tackle the climate emergency. She said Scotland will do everything we can to play our part 
Yet on the same day the UK government released its planet wrecking plan, Scotland's Transport Secretary confirmed his plans to expand roads, a policy we know increases emissions and congestion. First Minister, is the Transport Secretary delivering your agenda or Boris Johnson's? First Minister. I don't even think that's a particularly serious comment, or one that many people will take seriously. We have, we have a balanced transport uh, policy. Uh, all of our policies have to be assessed against our 2045 uh, net zero uh, target and ambition and the interim milestones, which in many respects are uh, even more stretching because they're closer and the ambition that we need to uh, deliver to uh, meet them kicks in now. So all of our policies have to be measured against that and that is part of the assessment pro process that the government uh, goes through. Uh, and we are extremely serious uh, about using COP26 as a catalyst for that, as a pressure point on governments, but also as an opportunity for us to use whatever influence we have to encourage other countries to do likewise. And because of the urgency of this, because of the need to take the steps now uh, that will be necessary if we are to meet those medium to long term targets, it's COP26 may be the best, if not the only chance we have of getting the whole world uh, behind that agenda. So we'll continue to play our part to the full. We are uh, trying to galvanise uh, the, the efforts of what's called the Under Two Coalition, uh, cities and, and regions in the world. Scotland is currently the European co-chair uh, of that organisation. I spoke at the end of last week to uh, President Biden's climate envoy, uh, John Kerry, to again consider what steps Scotland can take working with the wider world. Alison Johnson is absolutely right, though, to say that it's not just what uh, we say that counts here, it's what we do. And therefore, our policies in the round have to be measured against that. It will always be easy to pick one policy and say that somehow that jars with the, the ambitions we've set. What we've got to do is look at our policies in the round and say, is this meeting the ambition that we've set? And that's the challenge uh, for government. And that is absolutely what opposition members should make sure they hold us to account on. Thank you. Question five, Richard Lyle. Thank you, President Officer, to ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to reported concerns expressed by the construction, care and hospitality industries that lack of overseas workers after the COVID-19 pandemic threatens economic recovery. First Minister. Uh, before I answer the substantive question, can I say I, I assume, I may be wrong, but I am assuming this may be Richard Lyle's uh, last question uh, in Parliament before his uh, retirement uh, when Parliament rises for the election. So uh, as a, a long-term colleague and even more importantly, a long-term friend, I want to take the opportunity to thank uh, Richard Lyle for his contribution over many, many years, uh, first as an elected councillor and latterly as a member of this Parliament. That's been a, a sterling contribution and I know I and certainly colleagues on these benches will miss him greatly when he departs the chamber. Um, people uh, born overseas uh, and who live here in Scotland make an invaluable contribution across our public services and our economy. UK government immigration policies will bluntly make it much harder for people to come here and make that positive contribution. Uh, as we face the biggest economic crisis in decades, the UK government, in my view, should urgently rethink their immigration plans to allow for the level and the type of migration that Scotland and, I would argue, the rest of the UK's economy and communities need to prosper. Denying access to those uniquely skilled workers will be disastrous for our economy, and for our society and risks acute labour shortages in some of these sectors. Richard Lyle. Can I thank the First Minister for that reply and her kind comments. It's my last 45 years has been a, a blast, especially being a member of the SNP since 1966. The Office of Budget Responsibility has warned that the future UK population may be substantially smaller than official estimates suggest as people leave Britain causing a scarring impact. Does the First Minister agree that it's long overdue that Scotland had powers to design its own migration system so that we can chart a different course? First Minister. Uh, yes, I, I do agree with that. I think it is long overdue that Scotland had full powers to chart our own course. 
uh, shape our own destiny and play our own very positive part in the world. And I do believe that day is coming. Um, I share very much the concerns about the impact of UK immigration policies on our long-term population levels, particularly in the rural parts of our country. Um, and these impacts will be felt more severely in Scotland because of our different demographics uh, than they will be in the rest of the UK. The Expert Advisory Group on Migration and Population estimates a net migration reduction of 30 to 50 per cent by 2040, uh, and that that would mean up to uh, a 5 per cent decline in our working age population. Overall, we estimate immigration changes could result in a GDP reduction of around £5 billion. Uh, so there's no doubt these policies will harm Scotland. Uh, I hope the UK Government thinks again and changes course, uh, but I certainly hope that it is not uh, too far into the future when Scotland has the opportunity to shape these policies for ourselves. Thank you. Question number six, Jamie Green. Thank you. To ask the First Minister what percentage of clinically vulnerable people have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. First Minister. Uh, clinically extremely vulnerable people, of course, are part of the JCVI Priority Group 4. As of today, 91 per cent, that's 163,111 people uh, in the clinically extremely vulnerable uh, group have received their first dose of the vaccine. By way of context, the published uptake figure for uh, clinically extremely vulnerable in Wales was up to yesterday 88%. And in England, the latest published statistics are only up to the 28th of February. But as of that date in England, the figure was 88.3%. Jamie Green. Can I uh, thank the First Minister for that update? But as we've heard, it's been a year since the first tragic COVID death. And I think today we all remember everyone who suffered and lost as a result of this virus. But also in that year, science, governments, academia and pharmaceuticals have developed, tested and produced the vaccine, which is already in the arms of 23 million people across the UK. And I think we owe them all a huge debt of gratitude, as well as those who volunteered in trials, our health workers and the armed forces who've all played an important part of this. But nonetheless, it is the waiting, First Minister, which makes our most vulnerable in society nervous and anxious. And many people watching today are nervous and anxious, waiting on that appointment letter. So can I ask the First Minister to comment on reports that there may be up to 900,000 doses of the vaccine currently allocated to Scotland but unused? And if so, can she outline how and when the government will get any unused vaccines into the arms of our most vulnerable as quickly as, quickly as we can and irrespective of where they live? First Minister. Uh, firstly, just because I... I do want to agree actually with the substantive part of Jamie Green's question. We owe everybody involved in uh, researching, developing, manufacturing and administering the vaccines an enormous debt of gratitude. It is quite extraordinary uh, the progress that has been made in such a short space of time and uh, we've had a lot uh, of tough, negative, difficult things to contend with in the last year but that should give us all both a sense of pride and a sense of real hope uh, about what human ingenuity can actually achieve. So I want to very much agree with that. On the second part, I hope, uh, I'm not I'm going to try not to uh, strike a, a discordant note here, but I, I had hoped we were beyond this point. We have supplies of the vaccine allocated, distributed, uh, to Scotland and then within Scotland. We are vaccinating people as quickly as possible. We have to model uh, the supplies over a period to make sure we are getting the, uh, the number of appointments right against not just the supplies we have today, but the supplies that we will have next week and the week after that. And of course, for the last few weeks, we have also had to be uh, reserving a, a proportion of supply for second doses, which have started to fall due after the 12-week period uh, from the time uh, people started to get the vaccine in the uh, early December, actually. So all of that has to be carefully managed and is being carefully managed. Um, and that is true in Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. We are vaccinating people as quickly as supplies allow and that will continue to be the case. There has been a dip in supply over the last couple of weeks, two to three weeks. That's reflected in our daily figures. If you go, as you can do, and look across the, the UK and the dashboards that are published, you will see similar uh, effects there as well. From the middle of this month, which is we're getting close to that now, we are expecting supplies to significantly increase again and you will then see that acceleration 
in our vaccination programme. But people, I know the anxious wait uh, for um, in one of the age groups now that hopefully will get the blue envelope in the not too distant future. And particularly if you've got an underlying health condition, I absolutely understand the anxiety of waiting for that. We're going as quickly as possible. We've made more progress than I could have ever thought possible at the start of this year. And we will continue to do everything we can to vaccinate everybody in the adult population just as quickly as supplies allow us to do. Thank you. Question number seven, Pauline McNeill. To ask the First Minister for what reason the Scottish Government has chosen not to extend the reduction to land and buildings transaction tax beyond March. First Minister. Well, the Scottish Government was clear from the outset that this measure was temporary. It was intended to support the housing market in this financial year, and we always said it would come to an end on the 31st of March this year. Uh, the decision takes account of the specific circumstances of the Scottish housing market, which showed record levels of activity uh, under LBTT in the final quarter of 2020. We have seen no evidence of the overall blockages in the housing market that are being reported in England. From 1st of April, the progressive rates and bans will continue to support first-time buyers and others who wish to buy a home. And in particular, the first-time buyer relief will mean an estimated 8 out of 10 first-time buyers will pay no LBTT at all. So we've taken decisions that we believe are right uh, for the particular circumstances of the Scottish housing market. Pauline McNeill. The decision not to extend the reductions to land building transaction tax is similar to the extension of stamp duty in England and Northern Ireland is disappointing news for Scottish home buyers. Um, rather than decrease revenues in December alone last year, land building transaction tax revenues were healthy with the highest recorded monthly figure. But this follows a recent Scottish Government closure of the Help to Buy scheme and a 70% cut to the first home fund, which remains closed until April. So as things stand, the government don't have a comprehensive policy for young buyers and first-time buyers and supporting those who are low earners now resented some of those key policies and particularly concerned about young people buying first homes. Would the First Minister reconsider a more comprehensive approach to ensure that in making the decisions in each of these funds we are supporting young buyers and to our low earners? Thank you. First well, the, the decision we've taken on LBTT, I think, is right for the Scottish housing market. You know, for example, in the latest three months to the end of January this year, uh, transactions were 28% higher uh, than in the previous three months. LBTT transactions have risen in eight of the last nine months and actually rose to record highs in four of the last five months. So the market looks very different now compared to when the temporary change was made. Um, transactions then had fallen by 41% over the three months uh, to May 2020. Uh, so it would not make sense for us to continue to design LBTT policy based on a housing market uh, that was very different uh, a year ago at the start of this crisis. But of course, LBTT is structured in a way that is designed to support first-time buyers. And as Polly McNeill rightly says, we have had additional support for first-time buyers. Um, and we want to make sure that resources we have available to us are targeted uh, as effectively as possible. And that means targeting uh, towards first-time buyers and helping people onto the housing market for the first time. So I know these are difficult decisions for people who are directly affected by them uh, and I appreciate that and I sympathise with that but we have to take these decisions in the round and I think we're striking the best balance overall. Thank you. We'll move on to supplementary questions. Claire Adamson to be followed by Miles Briggs. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, the administration of Greensill Capital, one of the UK's largest providers of chain finance, supply chain finance, is a cause for concern to many manufacturing businesses. One of those impacted is Liberty Steel. Can I say, as the constituency MSP and member of the Steel Task Force under the stewardship of Fergus Ewing, just how vital and welcome the Scottish Government interventions were in securing both production and jobs in the intervening five years. So I can ask the First Minister, what discussions have the Scottish Government had with Liberty to understand potential impacts? First Minister. Well, Claire Adamson is absolutely right, and she is well placed to know this from her own involvement and very productive involvement in 
uh, the efforts uh, to save uh, what is now Liberty Steel. And that, uh, had we not uh, worked with the company to uh, enable that, uh, then those jobs would have been lost there and then. And that is why I will always prefer that activist approach, trying to save jobs, trying to secure the future uh, of industrial plants like that. Uh, there's no doubt, though, that the administration of Greensill Capital UK uh, will impact on a wide range of businesses across the UK who rely on it for supply chain financing. Uh, the GFG Alliance, which includes Liberty Steel, uh, has acknowledged the challenges posed to its businesses and has indicated it's seeking alternative long-term funding arrangements. Uh, we take uh, some comfort from the public statements of GFG Alliance uh, that it's performing strongly and has access to sufficient resources for its business needs, but we will continue to monitor the situation very closely and, as I said to Willie Rennie, we maintain regular dialogue with the business. Miles Briggs, be followed by Daniel thank, Johnson. Thank you, President Officer. First Minister, I've been contacted by a number of constituents who are becoming increasingly concerned about the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine here in Edinburgh and the inconsistencies with age groups being called to be vaccinated. And I've raised these concerns with the Health Secretary and I appreciate that there will be some overlap with age groups. However, there seems to be confusion over when exactly 60 and 65-year-old age groups will actually receive the vaccine here in Edinburgh. And I'm sure the First Minister will agree with me that it would be unacceptable for NHS Lothian residents to be behind others. So can I ask the First Minister what additional resources will NHS Lothian receive? Will she investigate this situation? And can I ask why are the Scottish Government not publishing local health board age-specific vaccine uptake figures? First Minister. Well, as I've said before, we will continue to break down uh, as far as we can the, the information that's been published. I said earlier on today, uh, as of tomorrow, Public Health Scotland are going to be uh, improving the reporting, and so we continue to try to improve the granularity of the, the data that's published. Um, Obviously, the, the vaccination programme is going better than we ever anticipated. Uh, more people have been vaccinated than we would have anticipated at the start of the year. That said, I understand, I absolutely understand and identify with the anxiety people have to, to get their appointments as quickly as possible. And I can understand if people feel that they know somebody in a younger age group that's been vaccinated ahead of them. I'd make two points about that. If that is the case, it is likely to be because the person in the younger age group has an underlying health condition that gives them the same level of priority as the, the older person. But it's also a practical thing. If we were to work through you know, strictly in chronological order and, and not start, say, 55 to 59 year olds until we had completed 60 to 64 year olds. The problem that Jamie Green just put to me, I think, if I may say so a bit unjustly, would actually become a real problem because we wouldn't be using vaccine as quickly as we could. We'd have vaccine sitting on the stocks uh, while we, we did it that way. So we are doing it in the way we are to get to people as quickly as we possibly can. 45% of 60 to 64 year olds have been vaccinated already. Uh, others in that group will be getting uh, their vaccination appointments on an ongoing basis. Uh, the 55 to 59 year olds and the 50 to 54 year olds, uh, general appointments will start going out to these age groups now, but those in those age groups have already been vaccinated. It's likely to be because they've got an underlying health condition. The way we're doing it, uh, I know can create anomalies in people's minds, but it is the best and quickest way to get through people um, as speedily as possible. And that's why I can stand here with you know, a considerable degree of confidence, assuming there's no unexpected interruption to supplies, and say that by mid-April, everybody in the country, over 50, every unpaid carer, and everybody uh, with an underlying health condition, every adult with an underlying health condition, will have had the first dose of the vaccine. And by the end of July, assuming the supplies allow it, the whole adult population will have been offered the first dose. Daniel Johnson to be followed by Gillian Martin. Um, I would remind the Chamber that I am a member of the trade union uh, community. In response to Willie Rennie's questions regarding the threats to GFG, the First Minister outlined a series of uh, securities and guarantees undertaken by the Scottish Government. What she did not do was confirm the total liability that the public purse is exposed to because of those guarantees. Will she take the opportunity to set out what the figure is? And will she request that Audit Scotland urgently reviews the, this, these deals and how they were put together, given the reports in the press over recent days? Because ultimately, workers want Scottish Government interventions to save their jobs for the long term, not just for a few years, which is why we need to know what has gone wrong here and indeed in other such interventions. First Minister. 
In terms of the first part of Daniel Johnson's question, uh, for reasons of commercial confidentiality, there is a limit on what we are able to disclose. But, and this is the important point. A full and detailed process uh, was followed, which culminated in the guarantee being approved by the Parliament's Finance Committee, of course, with MSPs from parties across this chamber. And that is uh, often how these things are done, where there are issues of commercial confidentiality, but a need for proper parliamentary scrutiny. Um, and all of these matters are taken extremely seriously because the government has uh, got uh, issues that it has to satisfy itself on, on legalities and on use of taxpayers' money. And of course, there have been uh, instances in this chamber where I've had to stand here. If, if we take uh, the, uh, the, the train uh, refurb uh, site in Glasgow, for example, Springburn site, where Labour members repeatedly said, nationalise it, buy it out. And I had to say we couldn't because we couldn't satisfy those tests in, in that situation. So these are really serious things that government takes seriously and goes through a process. It's not for me to, to tell Audit Scotland what it can and can't uh, look at. Audit Scotland is free to, to look at whatever it thinks it is appropriate to do. Um, I will not apologise for trying where possible and where government can satisfy the legal um, and you know, taxpayer uh, money requirements that we have to satisfy, where we can satisfy the Parliament's Finance Committee of these things. I will not apologise for trying to save jobs and give uh, an economic future to places like uh, DL uh, and the aluminium smelter in Loch Aber. Gillian Martin to be followed by Jamie Halker-Johnson. President officer, I have a, a great many pig farmers in my constituency and they've been adversely impacted by the aftermath of the temporary closure of the abattoir at, in Brechin because of a COVID outbreak there. They are facing severe disruption due to the suspension of certificates uh, to export to China, a big market for them and a backlog in sending pigs to slaughter, leading to increased costs and capacity issues. Can the First Minister advise what assistance the Scottish Government can offer these businesses? First Minister. Well, I'm aware of the challenges that Scottish pig farmers are facing following the temporary closure of the Brecon processing plant due to a COVID outbreak. Fergus Ewing and officials are liaising closely with Quality Meat Scotland, farmers and the abattoir operators to address the problems that have been caused. Active consideration has been given to what, if any, hardship support could be provided to the farmers affected. It's disappointing that the temporary closure resulted in the suspension of the China export licence. It will be key to try and restore that as quickly as possible and advice has been provided to the operators regarding the steps uh, that are needed in order to achieve that. Officials are regularly liaising with DEFRA and, uh, the, and Beijing embassy officials to examine all options that can help expedite uh, the relisting process. And I'm sh Fergus Ewing, I will ask Fergus Ewing, although I'm sure he is doing it already, uh, to keep Gillian Martin updated on progress. Jimmy Halker-Johnson to be followed by Beatrice Wishart. Uh, thank you. Given the seriousness of the situation around GFG Alliance, will the First Minister commit to the Economy Secretary making a statement to Parliament next week uh, to update members. And the First Minister talked about the securities the Scottish Government holds. Um, could the First Minister advise whether these securities could lead to the Fort William plant being taken into public ownership? First Minister. Uh I'm happy to come back on the detail of exactly the, uh, what the security, within the constraints of commercial confidentiality and other constraints, exactly what the securities allow the Scottish Government to do. Um, I am sure uh, the Economy Minister would be very happy to come and make a statement to Parliament, but of course it's for the Bureau to uh, determine parliamentary business, particularly over these very congested last couple of weeks of uh, business. But I say uh, openly that if there is a desire for that in the uh, Parliament, then of course the Government will provide such a statement. And Beatrice Wishard? The High Island Community's Impact Assessment on Aircraft Traffic Control Centralisation lists a series of serious negative impacts for Shetland, ranging from job losses to side effects for the local economy. No positive impacts were noted, and the same can be seen in Orkney. This report either entirely undermines the proposals put forward by High Isle or entirely undermines the credibility of the Islands Act. First Minister, which is it? First Minister. Well, the decision to proceed uh, with the ATMS was taken, of course, before the Islands Act was passed, but HIO uh, did, of course, undertake to do a retrospective islands impact assessment, and that was carried out by an independent consultant, and the assessment was published uh, on the HIO website on the 5th of March. 
Uh, we recognise the need to modernise air traffic control to ensure more sustainable and reliable air services in the Highlands and Islands. Hyl has been tasked with taking this process forward uh, to find both the safest and the most sustainable uh, solution. Hyl has taken their decisions based on the best available information um, and analysis of the different options available. Uh, no alternative has been proposed which addresses the issues uh, that the project aims to resolve, but I know Hyl will want to continue uh, to liaise closely uh, with staff and with key stakeholders um, as they take forward any plans. Thank you very much. Apologies to all the members we couldn't reach, but I'm conscious we have to move on to the next item of business, which is... Yes, point of order, Elaine Smith. Thank you very much, President Officer. Um, and I don't make this point of order lightly. I want to ask about parliamentary procedure under our standing orders. Um, while I've been here, I've just uh, seen a tweet, and I'm just going to tell you what it says. What it says is, it's as if all Miss Smith wanted to do was make an angry comment and get a dig at the Cabinet Secretary. Some of the language being used by certain contributors were at best shocking and at worst a hate crime. I guess they like the privilege that Parliament provides. President Officer, that's obviously, as everyone will know, uh, relating to the stage three of um, hate crime yesterday. And it's a tweet by a man who is a member of a cross-party group in this parliament, one that I'm a co-convener of, also a deputy chair of a charity. So what I have to say is, it seems to me that this hate crime bill that this parliament is considering in its present form actually seems to be unleashing chilling misogyny and hate against women. And that's even worse that comments are being made on the day when we have again been reminded starkly of the violence faced by women because of our sex. What I would like to ask, presiding officer, and, and you can tell me if this is um, under the standing orders, if this is allowed, in fact, if, it's, if it can be done. It's not too late to withdraw this bill, I hope, and undertake a full and robust consultation and include women in this legislation. So I wonder if you could tell me, presiding officer, under your standing orders, is that something that the government could now do? Thank you. Thank you, uh, Ms Smith. Yes, under standing orders, it's possible to withdraw a bill at any stage. However, uh, I, I would suggest that's a more, the members made more of a political argument uh, than a procedural point. And we're about to actually move into the debate on this bill. Uh, there will be opportunities for members from all sides to discuss this matter, including the general context in which she put her remarks. So we're going to now move on, if I can, to uh, the next item of business. In fact, there will just be a short pause because I'm conscious that um, members need to uh, leave the chamber. Can I urge all members um, to clean and wipe down any seats if they are changing desks? Hopefully all members will stay in the same desk, but if some members have to change, make sure that they thoroughly wipe down the desk so that people can use it. Other members, please wear your masks, observe social distancing and follow the one-way systems around the building. Thank you. Short, a short pause. <laughs>